Welcome to Subcutaneous, a beneath-the-skin look at modern medicine. With myself, Dr. Goddard. And me, David. Not doctor. (laughs) (laughs) Today, we have a special guest, Dr. Jason Samuels, who is joining us from Denver, Colorado, to talk about his experience in medicine and how he got to be a general surgeon going into minimally invasive surgery this coming week. Yes, he uh, agreed to come and talk to us. He's moving on to his fellowship next week, but he's had a long journey, so it's going to be an interesting conversation. So without further ado, all right. So today we have a special guest, Dr. Jason Samuels, who just completed his general surgery residency at the University of Colorado and is about to start his fellowship. So we are doing a call-in with him in Colorado. Um, So thank you so much for being here, Jason. Yeah, happy to be here. Yeah. So Jason and I actually met in medical school at the University of Oklahoma. They have these things called modules where they kind of split you up into smaller groups so that you can make friends. Um, And it worked out pretty well. Um, Jason and I became friends and uh, Jason, Valerie, and I used to study together a lot at uh, Cuppies and Joe, which is no longer a thing, but in Oklahoma City. So uh, we missed that spot. Mm -hmm. Yeah, rest in peace, Cuppies and Joe. (laughs) I know. So we will start off from the beginning. Kind of give us some of your background, Jason. Where did you grow up and uh, what did you kind of grow up wanting to do? I grew up in... Dallas, Texas, and was raised in a suburb of Dallas, Plano, and grew up in a very science-oriented family. My dad's side, uh, him and two of his sisters are all engineers, long line of engineers. And then my mom's side was in, my mom was in healthcare. She was a social worker by training, but a nursing home administrator as I was growing up. And so from a very early age, I was interested in, in science from a primary perspective, but also at a, in a, uh, exposure early on to healthcare, not necessarily within the hospital, but more of a long-term care experience, volunteering in nursing homes and things like that. I grew up playing hockey. That was a passion of mine, despite growing up in Texas, and then ultimately end up uh, at University of Oklahoma for undergraduate and remained there for medical school. And for the last seven years, I've been at the University of Colorado for my surgical training. So when you, uh, you know, as a kid, it seems like kind of an odd thing to say that you started volunteering in nursing homes. What was kind mm-hmm. of the driver behind that? Well, as I said, my, my mom was a nursing administrator, so some of it was volunteering, some of it was <laughs> uh, brought labor. along to help. Yeah, but I did enjoy it, so you, you'd help with things like bingo or attend the social events, spend time, get to know the residents. A lot of these nursing homes had gardens that you'd help garden with the residents, and so it was uh, an opportunity to really uh, spend time with the individuals living there and seeing the personal side of things when it comes to uh, the service industry, if you will. Mm -hmm. Even if I was a volunteer, you're you're meeting the families, you're meeting the uh, residents and uh, becoming a very minute part of their lives, but still a part of their lives. Well, I'm sure they loved having a uh, kick around too. (laughs) (laughs) Oh yeah, for sure. For sure. Do you remember, you know, as a small child, at least what you wanted to be when you grew up? So uh, my best recollections probably early in high school where I started to think about what I wanted to do. And I had been exposed a lot to the sciences, as I mentioned. Uh, I was encouraged to go to uh, a variety of science-oriented camps at an early age before sports became a major part of my life. And I'd always had an interest, read popular science growing up. But it took a while for me to uh, transition that to thinking about being a physician. And, And that didn't really come until high school when I got involved with a health careers course and after school program and took part in some kind of sports medicine type uh, events where you learn how to wrap an ankle and things like that. Granted, I was not very good at that compared to people who were involved with high school football teams and whatnot, but it kind of showed me how science and physiology can kind of be melded into a career. And kind of from then on, I figured I'd be a doctor and, and that became the focus probably around freshman or sophomore year of high school. I was off and running, and, and I did some shadowing with a uh, ear, nose, and throat surgeon in Tyler, Texas. He was nice enough to, since it's about a three-hour drive from Dallas, actually let me stay at his house for oh, a nice. weekend. And then uh, on the weekday, I'd, I'd go and watch him do uh, a variety of different surgeries. I had no idea really what was going on at the time. 
but uh, it was still very cool to kind of see that experience. Uh, so it really kind of solidified around early high school, but I knew that that's ultimately what I wanted to do. And I considered a few other things like uh, more of a PT sports medicine career. Uh, I briefly played around with the idea of architecture, but I don't have a creative bone in my body and can't draw to save my life. So that was pretty easy to rule out. Were all uh, those kind of other uh, ideas in your brain in college? Were you kind of like exploring that in college or was this all trying to decide what you wanted to, where you wanted to go to college and help you make that decision before you went? This was, this was all really, before. by the time I reached college, I, I was pre-med, if you will, mm -hmm. and, and knew that was kind of the path. And I had some plan Bs in mind. But by the time I arrived in Norman, I knew that that's what my plan A was and what I wanted to do. And pretty much all my efforts were towards, towards achieving that goal. Yeah. So how did that Okay, so now you know you want to go to med school. You're mm -hmm. in high school. You're applying to college. What did that experience look like? Did you know you wanted to go to OU? Did you get a really good scholarship <laughs> to OU? I mean, you're from Texas, right? So this is an out-of-state school. Right. Uh, mm -hmm. And so how did you make that decision? What factors yeah, so in? Both, both my parents are actually Texas alums, UT. And oh, so wow. plan A was to, <laughs> plan A was to go to Texas and... Uh, I, I have no ill will other than they're our biggest rival towards the experience what took place. But essentially, Texas had a law when I was in high school, and I think it's changed a bit, in that if you're in a top 10% of your high school, you're automatically into your school. And there's a number of reasons they have that law in place. Uh, but needless to say, I was just outside the top 10. And I did not ultimately get into Texas. That was kind of like the first major blow, I think, from an academic perspective towards you know, facing failure, if you will. That being said, I'd gone into a number of good schools that I was considering, like Michigan, Ohio State, uh, Boston University. Some of my schools were hockey-focused, even though I, I knew I wouldn't actually play. <laughs> it was, I just wanted to be in that environment. Uh, so like Boston and Denver University, I both applied to. And so I had a number of good opportunities. Uh, and then I had two heavy influences at the time, one of which were my parents, because I got a very significant scholarship to go to Oklahoma. Mm -hmm. And so they, they began encouraging me to go to Oklahoma. And my high school sweetheart at the time had also gone into Oklahoma. She was very strongly encouraging me to go to Oklahoma. And so uh, I ultimately, it, it seemed like it made sense for everyone. And, and I really enjoyed the campus. And I felt like it would uh, still help me achieve my goals of going into medicine. And so ultimately, that's where I arrived. And the decision point would have been, if I went to a place like Michigan, I would have had student loans. Mm-hmm. By the end of it, whereas if I went to a place like Oklahoma, my parents would be able to help me cover the costs, and I was able to finish undergraduate without student loans. Which now, having have medical school loans, I'm immensely grateful for that opportunity. Yeah, that was kind of the same, you know, position I was in too um, when deciding. And so, I think from a financial perspective, that makes a lot of sense. And you and I both were lucky to be able to stay at OU for both undergrad mm -hmm. and medical school from a financial perspective. That works well, and yep. I think we both kind of were able to achieve our final goals as far as what type of doctor we wanted to be and things like that. So, um, absolutely. When you're so you decide on University of Oklahoma, you're going in as pre med, correct? Mm -hmm. What was that experience like? Was it hard? Did you struggle, or as kind of a guy with a strong science background and you know <laughs> who did well and all that sort of stuff? Was it a, was it pretty easy? So, from an academic perspective, I think I had a number of uh, uh, benefits because I'd gone to a school with a strong educational program for high school, I mean, and I'd done taken a number of AP courses. So I think certainly the volume is greater when you get to college, but when it comes to uh, knowing kind of what to expect when it comes to a college level course, uh, I had that preparation. So I think taking those AP courses in high school was a huge benefit, just knowing what a high school course or a college course, I mean, looks like. But, you know, there's a number of distractors when it comes to uh, enrolling at a big state university. Mm -hmm. So I did join Greek life. I was in a fraternity and let's just say my fraternity was not one well known for its academic uh, strengths. <laughs> <laughs> so I was a bit, of, I, I was a bit of an outlier in that regard. And, and uh, you have to be honest with yourself with what your goals are while also being honest with your friends and people either support you with what you ultimately want to do or they won't. And if you really care about something, you'll make those sacrifices. But it was hard because uh, I was, you know, 
the one person in my paternity who would go to a library on the weekend to study. And so you do, you do get some uh, friendly ribbing about those kind of uh, decisions or uh, not, not wanting to party on a Thursday night because you have a test on a Friday was mm -hmm. also a, a common uh, occurrence in which I would get some gentle ribbing for. Yeah. I'm sure Lindsay as a uh, sorority girl could maybe speak to that a little bit too. Like, did you have those same sort of struggles or were they pretty encouraging about your academic career? Well, sorority life and Jason probably realizes this from being in Greek life at uh, Southern school at the university of Oklahoma. Sorority life is a little different than fraternity life, I would say. And uh, sororities really try and encourage uh, both good grades because that's how you kind of like show off to the incoming pledges and um they also are incoming members i should say we don't call them pledges um and uh also your how involved the sorority sisters are in the campus are all like encouraging things because they help you recruit new members to mm -hmm. your your sorority um whereas i think for fraternity life I don't think that pledges are uh, as interested in those types of things necessarily. They want to, it's more about having fun in my opinion, but I don't know. That's from, from my perspective. So I, I was definitely, we actually had study hours. Like we were required to study in the sorority study <laughs> hall for so many hours a, a week. Um, and then if you made bad grades, they increased the amount of hours you had to study in the study hall. Oh. And if you made good grades, your hours went down. So, so a very, a very different experience, even though you're going to the yeah. exact same school. Interesting. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. But I can see that. So I actually, in hindsight, think that experience was really beneficial because, uh, it doesn't change. I mean, there's always distractors when you're in medical school, even when you're a resident, you have a lot of requirements and with each progressive stage, you have less and less oversight in ensuring you get the job done or ensuring you're being prepared. And so having had that experience early on where I had to um, really manage my time and, and manage my responsibilities, I think that paid off really well when it came to beginning medical school and still maintaining a social life, but also being very honest with myself as to what I needed to do to study and be prepared. And certainly the same is the true one in residency where now it's very time consuming, but oh, you yeah. also have duties outside the hospital. Yeah, I think learning to say no, it's something I'm definitely learning still, but it sounds like you kind of learned that in undergrad, in like learning to say no to people who really want you to do something and kind of letting, not letting the peer pressure get to you essentially. So mm -hmm. yeah, it sounds like that was a, a very uh, fruitful lesson to learn so early yeah. on. And just to really make it clear, <laughs> some of the pressures I had, when I went to live in the house my sophomore year, a portion of how they determine what order you pick a room in the house. This is a house of like 40 rooms, I think. Uh, GPA was some percentage. And my GPA was so much higher than most of the seniors and juniors in my fraternity that I had second pick behind the president in the fraternity <laughs> for rooms well, as a sophomore. So it pays off. So uh, too. <laughs> it did pay off. So maybe yeah. this is kind of an interesting question. You kind of talked a little bit about how you were just outside that top 10% of your high school. And then mm -hmm. you come into college and it sounds like your freshman year, you did very well. Was that kind of a result of that kind of blow of not being able to select the stay in Texas? Or was it just that you kind of thrived in that environment a little more? Oh, I'm sure people who know me would say I, I kind of live with a, a chip on my shoulder. Uh, I don't know if I consciously went around thinking uh, I needed to do well to try and prove people wrong, although I certainly have. Uh, and motivated by a number of factors when it comes to wanting to do well and both internal and or intrinsic and extrinsic factors. Uh, but yeah, I, I think, uh, I think going to Oklahoma for undergrad and medical school, when I arrived at Colorado, I definitely had a mindset of, I need to demonstrate that I am capable and that I belong here, which I think is pretty common among all early physicians, but maybe a bit more so than friends who went to Ivy League schools or whatnot, right. although I don't want to speak for them. But but certainly by the time I got here to see you, I, I had that mindset where I really wanted to uh, demonstrate that I, I belonged. And what you realize is that your pedigree does not at all reflect mm -hmm. what you're capable of or not. And you'll meet people who come from state schools like I did, schools you've never heard of, and are phenomenally bright and intelligent, hardworking. And there'll be people who have a very strong pedigree who or intelligent, hardworking themselves, but it's not like they're at another level per se. Yeah, with, with pretty few exceptions. 
you all end up kind of in the same place regardless of where you go. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, I mean, I even remember feeling that way a little bit in med school, even though I would say the majority of our med school class was from University of Oklahoma. Um, you know, yeah. we had a couple of students who were from big name, like undergrads. And I remember just being like, oh my gosh, they probably are going to do so much better than me. Um, and so just feeling that comparison. And then I remember going off into my first year of internship and working with somebody who had gone to a big Ivy League school on the East Coast and wondering if I got the same level of training as she did, you know. Um, but I think that, like you said, you realize that it's more about what you put in and how much, mm-hmm. how hardworking you are. We're all kind of probably similar levels of smart, although we, as you and I both know, there are some people who are just like crazy smart <laughs> that you meet in med school. But um, in general, most of us are just smart and hardworking, and that's how we got to where we, mm-hmm. we want to be. Um, and so maybe we can talk a little bit about med school and applying to med school. Did you apply multiple places? I applied pretty broadly. I was in a significant relationship at the time of applying to medical school as well. And so I was somewhat limited geographically based on my significant other's career goals. Uh, and so I, I did not apply necessarily to all the schools I would have applied to otherwise, uh, but I applied across the country and figuring out uh, what medical school sets you up for success is really challenging. I think ultimately, again, most medical schools will get you on the right path, but there are some small differences that are really hard to suss out until you're really on the ground there. Uh, I think it worked out really well ending up at Oklahoma because I do think we are held to a high level of expectations when it comes to being a medical student in the wards and clinics. And there's a lot of changes I've seen at CU where their experience is very different from what ours is. And I don't think anyone knows what the long-term effects will be of that. Uh, But yeah, I applied broadly. I interviewed at I think four places ultimately, not a a ton of places. So it was a little tight in getting in, but ultimately worked out really well with Oklahoma and and yeah, it's been great since. <laughs> and so you were, were you like a zoology major then? What did you major in in college? I, I majored in biochemistry, thinking that that would get me a bit broader uh, opportunities. Uh, medical school didn't work out. Okay. And then were there anything, anything particular that you did or any advice you'd give to people applying for medical school that you did in undergrad that you think really helped you uh, succeed in getting into medical school? I think... Grades, everyone will show up with great grades. Everyone will show up with a lot of different uh, activities on their resume, CV, whatever we want to call it. So what you really need, and I tell medical students this all the time, is you need experiences you can speak to Mm -hmm. that demonstrate your interests and understanding of what the job entails. And so in undergrad, I had taken part in an undergraduate internship one summer at Bellevue Hospital in New York City. I actually applied twice. I didn't get in my freshman year. I got in my sophomore year. And then I spent uh, three months in New York City living there, working at Bellevue Hospital as a volunteer, essentially, shadowing, bringing blankets to the patients, helping patients find their way around the hospital, things like that. But you do get a pretty unique experience at the bedside. You're in the traumas. You're in the OR. And, and that clearly solidified my desire to be a physician and uh, to be in the hospital. And, and I could always speak to that if I went to an interview. And the first question they'll, of course, ask is, well, why do you want to be a doctor? And, and to say you've, you've been there, you've spent on your 12 hours on your feet helping manage patients, even though it's at a very rudimentary level, will demonstrate that much more to an interviewer at a medical yeah. school that, that you really are interested in this. And I did some other activities as well. I worked at a free clinic mm-hmm. in uh, undergrad. I had some involvement with different health-oriented career groups. And so all that uh, you can then speak to when it comes to time to applying either in your personal statement, when you're interviewing for a medical school spot, all of that. And, and that really, I think, is, is critically important. As you kind of uh, enter in this first stage of medical school and everything like that, do you have an idea of what you want your career to be? I thought for sure I would not do surgery. <laughs> uh, I, I didn't have a good idea when medical school started what, I, what kind of physician I wanted to be which I think is, is pretty common. It's, uh, you have no idea what, what the job entails before you become a physician. Uh, and even, even when you're an intern as a resident, you still kind of don't have a great idea of what you're going to be doing on a day-to-day basis. Mm-hmm. So I was fairly open-minded when it came to my clinical years, but early on, I had absolutely no idea. I was just kind of focused on learning the nuts and bolts of medicine and being a doctor and figured I would learn, figure out what I want to do along the way. And so 
all I told everyone, which is hilarious, is that I, I don't know what I want to do, but I know I don't want to do surgery, which is ultimately <laughs> what I ended up doing. Well, that's kind of funny because we have a running joke where it's like everybody enters medical school with an idea of what they want to do, and nobody actually yeah. ends up doing that. And you entered with an idea of what you didn't want to do, and you ended up doing it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I remember you in med school. Like, I was like kind of giving David the debrief today, and I'm like, Jason just like wanted to do a million different things. Um, <laughs> and so I think, how did you maybe walk us through how you found the path to surgery? Because I remember, you know, when you go somewhere, they go, okay, medicine or surgery. That's kind of how it starts out. Mm-hmm. And so you were kind of already answering that first question for people, which helps people decide what they want to do. Do you want to do medicine or surgery? But you were kind of always saying medicine, medicine. Um, and so you're probably led down to that path further. Um, so maybe walk us through how how did your mind change and what other things were you interested in and maybe why did you decide not to do those so early on i was debating different medical specialties either gastroenterology or cardiology and i i liked the cognitive aspects of those specialties and so when i began my rotations i think i started on family medicine and, and didn't really feel a connection with that and then i did ob as my second or third rotation ob and really was finding myself enjoying doing that aspect of, of medicine and couldn't really put my finger on why. And ultimately I realized later on that it was the, the technical aspects, being involved with the surgery, C-sections, getting my hands involved with patient care uh, really spoke to me. But I, still, I didn't, I didn't quite understand what any kind of surgical specialty would entail. Did medicine, didn't really enjoy it as much as I thought I would. You know, the day-to-day life of, uh, of a hospital this is i think different from what we anticipate when we begin medical school it's a lot of documentation it's a lot of administrative work unfortunately then i did my surgical rotation and it was very demanding for medical students I, if i remember right at least we were getting in the hospital at 4 30 oh yeah in the morning 5 a.m uh, which i don't think our medical stu- students these days do as frequently we were very involved with rounds, we would see patients, we would know what was going on with the patients. OU did a great job of making us a critical part of the team. Uh, and, and I'm very grateful for that. And I loved every minute of it. I mean, the hours we were working, I had no problem doing it, just getting to the hospital that early, being pushed that much. And the one thing that held me back is I had a concern or a fear that well, I'd, I'd never really done anything in my life where I was very hands-on and technical. Uh, I didn't build things, I didn't do anything where I'm having to take things apart or do very uh, detailed handiwork. And so I asked a mentor of mine in medical school, is that going to be a problem? One of the colorectal surgeons there. And, and he said very appropriately that anyone can learn ultimately the technical skills of surgery. That's not necessarily, that's not the hard part. The hard part's the decision-making, identifying the right patients to operate on, making the right decision at the operating room. But the part of taking things out, putting them back in, sewing together, the vast majority of, of surgeons can learn in the modern surgical training program and become very uh, capable. And I think about halfway through surgery, I started, or residency, I started having concerns that maybe that wasn't the case. But by the time you finish, you really realize that the skills you've picked up along the way. And, and now it still is more about understanding the decision-making process of mm-hmm. who is the best candidate for surgery, who is the patients who need closer attention. It's it's not in the operating room. It's outside the operating room that makes this job challenging, really. Well, and part of it's in the operating room, too, when things go wrong. I, I mean, oh, absolutely. My, which is a very different type of surgery than the surgery you do. But for me, I think it's, it's more of like uh, the things that could go wrong or like the um, people don't know what they don't know. Um, and so, like, you know, people are doing it who might not have done a fellowship or things like that. So, um, I think that like the, the on the spot decisions that you have to make when somebody's bleeding or something or like figuring that out. I think that's important too, maybe. Oh, absolutely true. It's still more of a, a cognitive aspect, I think, than a technical aspect. That oh, yeah. Yeah. It's challenging. Yep. Decision making under pressure. Yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so by the time I did my circle rotation, I knew that's ultimately what I wanted to do. And I still kept an open mind towards emergency medicine as well. And I did a rotation pretty late third year. And it didn't it didn't really uh, speak to me like surgery did and so by the time fourth year began i knew that's what i would be doing and applied to surgical residencies and, and was off and running towards the surgical program so to touch base on something you kind of said earlier and is 
something that's also very hard to do while you're, you know, in med school and through your residency and stuff like that is you have a, you've got a relationship, someone who is now your wife and everything like that. Was that kind of a struggle to maintain this during, you know, med school was probably not so much as hard, even though, you know, you're studying a ton, you're home for the most part and, you know, very busy and stuff like that. But then, you know, come, here comes residency and that, oh, you, at least you're in the same hospital the entire time. You're not traveling all over the place, but you're working these crazy hours. What was that like? My, my wife, Courtney, she's a, a she graduated pharmacy school the same time I graduated medical school and she wanted to do additional training. So she did two additional years of, of what they call residency, which is similar to our program, our residency and fellowship. And so the first year she was in Indianapolis while I was in Colorado. And then the second year she went to Seattle while I remained in Colorado during residency. And uh, the, the she may speak differently, but I think the reality is we were both very busy, like we described earlier. And you the, you make plans on, you'll talk every night and you'll make plans on when you'll see each other. And then you're just so focused on the day-to-day work of being an intern or a second year resident where you're very busy that, the time in between goes very quickly. And in hindsight, I'm sure at the time it didn't feel quick at all being away. And so we would see each other. We went the first six months, I think, without seeing each other. Wow. And then after that, <laughs> after that, we realized that was a bit much. Some of that was because I simply didn't. We Neither of us had flexibility in our vacation intern year. And it just lined up that way. And then after that, we were able to make it work more frequently with weekends and, and vacation holidays lining up. So we rarely went more than two months without seeing each other. Usually it was every month or so where one of us would travel and it wasn't necessarily like both of us would be off work, but either, even if, even if you could just spend the evenings together. Uh, and so that time was not ideal, but it went by very quickly. And, and you realize if it's the right person and you have a future together, then it's a pretty easy sacrifice to make as much as you want to want to do. And we certainly are happy how it worked out now because she's, got a number of career opportunities she did the training she needed to do and she's able to really go wherever my future takes us and we can work with anywhere in the country together yeah that's great that she's able to be flexible and you know you don't have as much choice in where you end up at this point but uh she can follow you and still have a good career absolutely well and you guys didn't have much time together before you matched into residency right so you guys met in fourth year (laughs) i mean I don't remember the, all the exact details, but I know this was a Cuppies and Joe romance. So um, <laughs> how long were you guys sure. together? I mean, you didn't have a lot of people will say, you know, you have to be together for years before you can do a long distance thing like that. And you guys definitely were not. So, uh, well, this brings up a very uh, long standing disagreement between Cordy and I, because we, we actually met <laughs> third year. Uh, I can we can laugh about it now, but we met third year. Uh, yes, we, you, Valerie and I were studying in copies. And I think one day I just went up and introduced myself to Courtney and we went on a couple of dates. And, uh, so that was midway through third year, late third year. And then I had that ER rotation pretty late that was in Tulsa. And so we spent about a month apart and things I would say fizzled out a bit on Courtney's behalf. Not, not for lack of my trying. <laughs> That's where the main disagreement is. Uh, but we, uh, were able to reestablish the relationship and yeah, it was, it was a bit interesting and unique. The fact that we hadn't spent years and years together to make that decision. But I think the fact that we kept the relationship going while being long distance pretty clearly proved to us what we were, uh, you know, that we had a very long future together. We did go to, uh, Rome together at the end of medical school. Both of us kind of put together what little student loan money we had left and, made a cheap Airbnb trip to Rome and Florence, uh, which was also pretty early on in our relationship, I guess, only yeah, been I together that. for a year. I was like, wow. Uh, yeah. <laughs> this is the true and, test. And, we, <laughs> and we, had, we had a great time together. So it was, it was pretty obvious where things were going. We just had to overcome this hurdle of not necessarily living in the same city for two years, unfortunately. Yeah, but you made it work. So that's good. We did. Yeah. yeah. Looking back at your... Uh residency was there kind of a uh, a favorite part something that you were really look back fondly at it's it's in my opinion not dissimilar from running a marathon or some of the uh, endurance type activities that people do where it's a very long build up to something and kind of when you're in the thick of it you don't really appreciate what you're achieving you don't really appreciate 
the obstacles you're overcoming. And then when you near the end, you're like, oh man, that was a lot of fun. And then if you told yourself that Mm -hmm. a year, two years, three years before, that person would be like, you're an idiot. What are you talking about? Like, this is, this is miserable. I mean, this is hard work. Glasses of history. Yeah. So you quickly forget the, the, the hard aspects of it. And you remember fondly going in and, and the, the amount of growth you experience as an individual, as a physician is, is so immense. Uh, you, you come out a completely different person, I think. And my maturity level, my intelligence, my emotional intelligence is very different from what I was like. I think when I arrived as an intern, it's, it's very much, you know, out of the crucible, you come, you, you become a very different individual in a, in a very good way. And so I think that's probably the thing I like the most is just the amount of personal growth you experience. It's, it's pretty much impossible not to undergo that just with the amount of mm-hmm. challenges you face, the amount of the, the expectations are so high. Uh, that's really an aspect of it that I, that I enjoy and, and very appreciative now. I, I think also it's cliche to say, but you make a lot of relationships that are lifelong. You're, you're kind of in the thick of it with individuals for you know five years, seven years, however long your training is. And so those relationships will obviously last you forever. And it's outside, you know, my parents will never completely understand what it's like to go through a surgical training. People who aren't in healthcare don't appreciate that mm-hmm. or any residency for that matter, not just surgery. Uh, so you have a, a special bond with those people who are there with you working through 12, 13, 14 hour days, doing 24 hour shifts, trauma calls, all that stuff. Yeah. Surgery. Is so that's obviously special. a <laughs> it, it can be very special, yeah. Its own special uh, uh, residency. Um, but we, we kind of jumped ahead a little bit here, too. Um, so you, in in med school, you decided you want to do surgery. And then how did you make a successful match? How did you decide on Colorado? Did you do mm-hmm. away rotations? I know things are changing now as far as COVID and things like that. But what did you do? to ensure a successful match and um, where did you want to go and how did that work out for you? So I think the biggest decision point became whether I would do an away rotation or not. I know these ideas of away rotations where you travel from your home medical school to another institution to do a month long or six weeks long is a complicated and, and uh, politically, uh, you know, politically minded issue now. I don't know how often students are doing that, especially after COVID, but the the advice I was given is you should not do an away rotation unless you really want to visit a program because you think you might really want to go there with the thinking of you only upset somebody and then you'll lose that chance. And I was of the mindset, well, I don't get along with an individual there. I probably shouldn't end up there for five or seven years, you know, if it's not a real fit. And so that didn't really dissuade me. So I ended up doing two-way rotations. I went to University of Colorado and I did a rotation at Grady Memorial, which is part of uh, Emory's program. Uh, with the thinking of I wanted to be in two very different locations in the United States, two very different approaches mm-hmm. to surgery, and there are a lot of differences between programs. And you end up having, I would argue, a, a bit of a leg up at a lot of programs when it comes to doing an array rotation. So in my class of 10 residents, I think six of us had done an away rotation at CEU. Because if you show up you work really hard, you show that you're capable and, and willing to be a team player. Programs are really willing to want to go with somebody they know than somebody they're basing off of a one-day interview process. So actually, it worked out incredibly well having done um, done an away rotation here at CU. And, and uh, I knew pretty well, at least I thought I knew what I was getting into. And, and ultimately, I think for the most part, my experience as a, uh, a, way, um, a visiting student really uh, matched what I anticipated being an intern would be like here. And so that paid off. And uh, I kind of never looked back knowing that Colorado was high on my list and, and they seemed interested in me as well. Yeah. And Colorado is a uh, five plus two program, right? Is that mm-hmm. the correct terminology? Can you explain that maybe to our listeners who might not understand? Cause you keep saying five or seven years. So, so general surgery is in mm-hmm. general, a five-year program. Uh, but sometimes there's an extra two years and that's what you did, right? Yeah. So when I was interviewing, it's changed a bit. When I was interviewing, we were strongly associated with residents doing research, but it was not mandated per se, but basically 90% of residents ultimately did two years of research. And so you can go to a program where the, you know, the bare minimum nationally is required is, is five years of surgical training. 
a number of programs and it seems like it's increasing slowly over the years will require one or two years or will offer one or two years of research and even fewer require two years of research and CU at the time was not requiring it. We do now essentially require it, although uh, every year since they've required it, one or two people will go all the way through without doing research, ironically. So that was uh, a major point of focus of mine is, did I really want to do research? Did I want to take two years off? And I, uh, my interest was always to be to do subspecialty training. And I had done research in the past and enjoyed it as an undergrad. I did research as a medical student, both basic science research and, and more clinical research. So that was and another thing I you that did in linked. undergrad to help you get into med school mm-hmm. too with some research. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and so I, that I certainly wasn't um, shot, uh, shot, you know, I, I was not worried about doing mm-hmm. research for a dedicated two years. And I knew that that would certainly help me when it came to time to apply to fellowships, which absolutely ended up being the case. Uh, having those two years of research experience definitely gives you a leg up when it comes to uh, building a very strong resume or CV or applying to fellowships and, and having a strong match for fellowship. And that, I think that paid dividends when it came to matching at Vanderbilt for my MIS fellowship. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was a major uh, uh, decision point. And a lot of the programs I looked at at least offered two years of research time, if not required it. So real quick, what was your, what was your research? What did you, what, did you have the ability to select what you were going to research? Were you kind of assigned and what was it? Yeah. So I was, it's another interesting story. I was interested when it came to what kind of surgical subspecialty I wanted to do and doing bariatric research or bariatric surgery, which is weight loss surgery. Yeah, but I was also potentially interested in doing trauma and I ended up renting out a basement of a more senior resident in our program my second year residency, who was, whose father was a NIH funded researcher and a very renowned trauma coagulation researcher. And so I was encouraged and, and certainly did not fight back the idea of going into that lab since I was living with Hunter Moore, whose again, father was the PI in this lab and had already started really taking part in some research or at least writing some manuscripts during my second year with uh, living while living in Hunter's basement. So I, I pretty quickly gravitated towards the trauma lab, which is a very, very well-funded, very successful, very well-published lab. And the focus there is looking at uh, changes in coagulation due to massive injury. So it was about the basic science lab, It was, uh, but we also do a lot of clinical outcomes research as well. They kind of ran, ran the gamut. So th- there was not much discussion in, in what lab. I kind of naturally gravitated towards that experience. And had that pretty much locked up early on my second year before we typically start our research time. So when, what years are you doing research in your seven-year track? So it splits. Some will do it like I did after your second clinical year. So you do your first two clinical years, and then you do two years of research. Rarely do people do three years or one year if you're wanting to do PhD or some other track. And, uh, and then you go back in as a third-year clinical resident and finish out your five years of clinical training. Some people also do uh, their research time after their third year clinical training, and then they're going back as a fourth or fifth year resident. But I ended up, I did it after my second year of clinical training. And during that time when you're doing research, you're doing a bit of moonlighting to kind of supplement your income and also help keep up your surgical skills? Or how do you kind of keep, you know, you only have two years under your belt, which to me seems mm-hmm. like not a ton to be away for two years and then come back in. Yeah, so we have the ability to moonlight, we call it, where you pick up shifts, usually overnight shifts, sometimes 24-hour shifts. In one of our ICUs at our hospital, we have a surgical ICU, we have a cardiac or a cardiothoracic ICU, um, a burn ICU. And, and so you would take a shift overnight for additional pay on top of your resident salary. Um, we call that moonlighting. And you can pretty much do that as little or as much as you want. Some people will double their salary doing that. I, that's not necessarily the case at all institutions, every institution is a little bit different with how they do their uh, moonlighting, if they offer that during research years or not. For the most part, there's not much surgical experience uh, during those moonlighting mm-hmm. years. It's mostly critical care experience. And so ultimately, you do miss out on those on that early. Ex- you, you begin developing your skills as a, as a surgeon your first two years, and then it kind of peters out again when you're doing your research. But it comes back very quickly, third, fourth, and fifth year, which are really your very operative heavy surgical years in training with the way surgical training is um, is carried out these days anyways. Yeah. So kind of like riding a bike. You can just get back on and 
kind of you're almost where you were before. So that's good. Yeah. Yeah, very much so. So during these, you know, you've gotten through your research years and everything like that. During these three, four, and five years, what does your life look like? I assume you're profoundly busy for one. Yeah, so uh, intern year is incredibly challenging because your time is not at all your own. Mm -hmm. So you get your schedule, which includes usually working one day of each weekend, and you're at the hospital from 5 a.m. to 6 p.m. or so. Monday through Friday, and then Saturdays can, or the weekends vary a bit, but your time's not at all your own. And so in many ways, that's easy because you just show up to work, you do your job, and then you leave and you go home and you do some reading and preparing for the next day. Or, uh, and then second year is more critical care heavy, and you're spending a lot of time in the ICUs at our institution. Uh, so your time's not necessarily your own, but there is some more freedom. But the hours, again, are, are quite long. You're kind of just uh, putting in your time, learning an immense amount very rapidly, and then going home and, and just trying to rest. Third, fourth, and fifth year is where it becomes a bit more uh, self-guided and, and where you start to see a lot of growth as well. And third year, you're kind of the mid-level resident between the interns and the seniors. And so you have a bit more flexibility in your time. You're not necessarily critical to the team in a lot of scenarios, but there's certainly ways in which you can contribute and help out you're also getting the operating room a lot more. And so your focus is trying to learn how to be a better surgeon as rapidly as possible, because the more growth you can demonstrate early on, the more you get to do. And it really is kind of a snowball effect on how well you progress. Uh, and so that's really where the focus is. And then by fourth and fifth year, you do get a lot more freedom over your schedule, over your life. But at the same time, you have a lot more responsibility in the hospital. And everyone approaches that reality a little bit differently. And some people get to the hospital incredibly early, know everything about the patients, their team is there to help them, but really like they're kind of driving the ship and, and other individuals utilize the team more so. And so there's a little bit less time spent in the hospital, uh, relying on your team members to fill in the gaps and focusing on other aspects. Uh, so fifth year is, is, I would argue from a time perspective, probably the, the easiest year per se, but in, in many ways it's also the most stressful because you really are a person in charge, you have your attendings backing you and obviously keeping, uh, you know, helping take great care of the patients. But a lot of, a lot of the hospitals you work at, you really are kind of the captain of the ship per se with, with oversight. And so you take that responsibility very seriously. And while you're not necessarily in the hospital as much, it's still quite stressful in a, a very different way. Yeah. But that's so important, that little transition year, because your first year out, you don't have that attending backup. Mm -hmm anymore and so as much as you can kind of try and be the main person in charge with somebody kind of just reading or looking over your shoulder i think is will serve you know who anybody very well their first year out because it's also its own little kind of difficult and good good and bad but difficult year too is that first year out but when you no longer have attendings but you will not get to experience that yet because you're going on to a fellowship. And so you mentioned that you were interested in uh, bariatric, which is the MIS fellowship, right? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, invasive they, surgery. they're kind of synonymous. Mm -hmm. Minimally invasive surgery and trauma. So how did you decide and when maybe did you decide what you were going to do? And then what did that match process look like for you? Yeah, so fourth year is at our institution very trauma heavy. We work at our county hospital probably about three months out of the year. And we also do some more additional trauma at a university hospital, both of which are called level one traumas, which is the highest designation for a trauma center. So you're seeing the sickest of the sick. And again, as there are aspects of it that are incredibly rewarding, incredibly enjoyable. And I certainly don't mean to take anything away from anybody who chooses that specialty, but it didn't quite fit my area of interest. There's a number of aspects of it I didn't necessarily enjoy. There's aspects of it I loved, obviously taking care of an incredibly ill patient and and seeing that go well is immensely rewarding. But the day-to-day -day aspect of it is, is not necessarily something that was inspiring to me. Whereas having my long interest in managing obesity as a disease process, wanting to be on the cutting edge when it came to technology and, and surgical skill set, uh, MIS and bariatrics really melded those interests well together. And so it, it ultimately became a pretty easy decision by about... Uh, early fourth year, even even midway through third year, uh, honestly, that I knew that that's kind of the path I was going down. It's kind of an interesting, you know, 
from your even from your high school years and entering med school mm-hmm. and everything like that where you're like at this process where you've never really done anything really technical and hands-on and all this stuff and you've just become super highly focused in this technical very hands-on like this is a this is all you want to do is this technical hands-on work mm-hmm. and everything like that that sort of transition and to not wanting to be a surgeon to being the most sort of technical hands-on surgery you can get a hold of yeah you have i have to remind myself that this is not a normal experience for most people in the world and when it comes to doing an operation removing parts of people's bodies really being intimately involved in an individual's life mm-hmm. uh it's, it's certainly a unique opportunity that you have to take very seriously but it does as it should, it becomes very mundane in that, you know, the steps of the surgery, you can make it as stress-free as possible. You can do it very safely so that taking a gallbladder out is, it can be straightforward. That being said, you do have to be prepared for the worst at all times. And, and that's why you do such a long training so that when things are not straightforward, you know how to get through those processes as well. Yeah, definitely. That's important. Um, what, so you've been through some long hours and hard training what advice would you give to people? How did you keep it all together? I mean, you did long distance relationship during part of this. Um, and you've also still made time. Like I've come to visit you during these busy times before too. And I feel like you tend, you do a good job of juggling kind of all of the, these things. You, you still enjoy your hobbies. You like cycling. I don't know if you still do hockey every now and then too, but um, how, how do you, how do you keep it all together? How do you uh, make time for everything? So I, time management obviously is really important. So my, I did play hockey the first couple of years in training and there was a number of people in our program, both uh, attendings and residents who played. And so we, I got the department hockey team back together. It kind of fizzled out right before I arrived. And one of it is, is finding time to do things outside the hospital is really fun. Not seeing people in that same setting. Uh, gives you a different perspective on everyone's life and, and makes it a bit more enjoyable in the hospital to do something with your colleagues, your residents and whatnot. So that certainly helps. When I started residency, I was more into running. And so typically a weekend, I would I would make it a, a, a point to go for a, a decently long run. And then I knew at the end of the run, okay, that was kind of, quote unquote, my fun thing to do in the morning. And then I'd head to a coffee shop and, and you'd put some hours in, in the coffee shop and study and, and read and prepare for the next week. And then you'd feel confident that you did what you could. And then that night you'd have plans either with friends or you'd do something away from it all. And, and you do have to have that balance. I think you can't simply plow through five years or seven years of training without finding some balance when it comes to doing stuff outside the hospital. So I, I hockey certainly helped. Uh, running certainly helped. And then when Courtney got down here and we began living together, we both picked up cycling pretty quickly. And, and that really became kind of our, our, our grounding uh, activity. So we would go up to the mountains and do a four-hour bike ride and completely hit the reset button mentally. And then you'd come back and you'd be ready for another week. And those those activities really helped give you an opportunity to get away from it all and, and hit the reset and kind of let go whatever stressors you faced the week before. Yeah, I think that's kind of an interesting thing. It's very easy for people to forget how you you said it was grounding to have these physical activities, you know, these releases where you're going to go out and you're going to work hard. And, you know, when you get done with it, you just feel so great, both body and mind and everything like that. But it's also really easy to forget how great that can make you feel and put those things on the back burner when you're really busy and you're like, I've got this thing coming up. I really need to study. Uh, maybe I'll just put it off this week or something, mm-hmm. but really it behooves you to take that opportunity, do it and give yourself the mental and physical release that comes with it. And you're going to be a much happier person in the long run. Yeah. There were a couple things I really was never willing to give up during residency. And one of those was sleep. And so I did my best to get at least seven hours of sleep, no matter what, you know, aside from being at the hospital for literally 24 hours in which you wouldn't sleep. But if, if it was a weeknight, I would call it quits around 8, 8.30 and, and get a full night's rest. And I felt like that was critically important for my success. And I have friends who can put in four hours and be incredibly productive and still able to take on the next day and more power to them. That's just not in my skill set. Uh, I knew that being physically active was going to be important to me. And so I always made a point to try and get a couple of workouts in a week and then doing something outside, physically active on the weekends as well. And then I also uh, ate pretty healthy, although I certainly had Courtney to thank for that once she, once we moved in together. 
but uh, maintaining a healthy diet. And, and everyone, again, their recipe for success is going to be different. Mm-hmm. But I knew that those aspects for me were really important, that I ate well, that I slept well, and that I was physically active. And if that meant I didn't quite study as often as some of my colleagues, so be it. But I knew that those were required for me to ultimately reach my, you know, my maximum abilities. Yeah. When do you think you instilled those like fundamental pieces of time management, things like that? I feel like you were pretty good about all of that in med school too. Um, so is this something, is this back to the fraternity days or you kind of learned how to do that or how, how'd you develop these skills that have served you so well? Yeah, it certainly, it, it definitely began as uh, a college student. So there were even some college game days, you know, Saturdays where OU would be playing in, in Norman. And I'd be the only individual in the library, which was kind of nice. No, honestly. you didn't. Studying. <laughs> I did. I did. I'm not, I'm, I'm not embarrassed to admit it now. Because, because I knew that I had to put in that time to be successful in whatever test or course it was I was working on. So I, I learned that those were sacrifices I was willing to make and, and didn't feel like I was missing out on something because I knew that, that, was, that I had goals and to achieve those goals, I needed to do that. Uh, but then you also balance it out where other weekends is a lighter week and you're like, okay, I've got these projects, but I'll have time. So I'm going to go out with friends or I'm going to go to the, the game. I'm going to enjoy myself. And the same thing was true in medical school. You kind of think of, you know, what do I need to do this week to be successful? What do I need to do to do well on this test? If there's a party going on or friends are going out, but I've got to do well on this test coming up. And that's ultimately what I did. And so I, I, I had developed a lot of those skills prior to arriving at residency and they definitely paid off here because your time is your own outside the hospital. No one's checking on you, even in medical school, but definitely in residency. But if you don't show up prepared for a case, if you don't know what's going on with your patients, no one's there to, to back you up or help you along the way. You, you have to put in the time and effort to continue to progress during your training. So I'm glad I had that experience. Yeah. And I think um, you kind of find what, what you want to give up your time for too. And and also some of it's like who you surround yourself with. Like I was lucky to have people like you and Val who probably encouraged me to do less social things and more studying things. Um, all the coffee shop or we actually kind of combined it, you know, which was great for me in med school mm-hmm. that we had social and study all at the same time at Cuppies. And right. um, so that some of it too can be who you surround yourself with during these times. At least that was kind of my key to success in med school, at least. Um, was being around people who were like-minded and wanted to do similar things. He liked to sleep too. I know. I love sleep. (laughs) (laughs) That was what Lindsay told me is the one thing she was never willing to give up on was her sleep. So, Yep. Had to make it work. Yeah. I I totally agree that I always try to make it a point of if I was studying to do it with colleagues, with friends, and that became a lot easier in medical school where you're suddenly with a lot of like-minded, very type A individuals who have similar goals to you. And so I agree. I was very lucky to have you and Valerie and we would go to coffee shops and study and their other friends, me and Smitha would go and run mm-hmm. together and, and then study afterwards. And then certainly Cordy and I, when I was interviewing for fellowships and people would ask, how did you find time to write publications even when you're out of residency or out of my research time? I mean, and I would say, well, I'm lucky enough to be married to someone who's also academically minded and had no problem spending an afternoon in a coffee shop after a bike ride. And so if you develop that social network of people, could be there with you while you do these activities and enjoy doing those activities together. It, it actually is, is pretty easy. It doesn't at all feel like a sacrifice. And so not uncommonly, Cordy and I would go for a bike ride, like I said, and then we would go to a coffee shop and work together in the afternoon or even come home and work when it feel like being in a coffee shop and suddenly it doesn't feel like you're making massive sacrifices by mm-hmm. any means. It feels like you're just doing what you enjoy. Yeah, that's great. Well, and that kind of segues into maybe our, my next question for you, which is fellowship match. So this happened kind of in the era of COVID, right, for you. Uh, so what did that look like? You went through one match cycle for residency, kind of a normal experience, and then now your fellowship match is uh, is in the midst of COVID. And how did that affect it? And, and what was your fellowship match process like? So for residency uh, interviews, I think I did 10 to 12, and, and you physically flew to these places is immensely expensive. I, I opened like a Southwest credit card and got a ton of miles doing that and spent as much as I could on the Southwest card. And so I banked a decent amount of miles, but it was still very expensive to go to all these different places and physically visit these places. And there's a lot of benefit of being there, although I would advocate for virtual interviews for residency and fellowship, having done 
virtual interviews. But when it came time to apply to fellowship, COVID had hit. And so no one was doing in-person interviews at all. So they're all Zoom. And there's a lot of discussion as to the equity of this process, whether mm-hmm. it's more equitable to do Zoom uh, or virtual interviews, or if it's more equitable to do in-person interviews. And I understand both sides. The I, I was very lucky having done well on the various uh, in-service exams and had built a very strong resume that I could take a lot of interviews. And so I did something like 20 interviews. And part of the thinking was that I really didn't know much about these programs when it came to a fellowship and I wasn't visiting there. So I really wanted to get as great of a lay of the land as possible. And the other aspect of it, which I don't think anyone really talks about is it really becomes a networking opportunity. And I knew I wanted to do academic medicine and I was meeting people across the country that I would have otherwise never met that I may end up reaching out to for a job at the completion of my one year. So having had that one opportunity to introduce myself, them to get to know me was hugely helpful. And I was just at a conference uh, for the Bariatric Society and and still some of the people I interviewed with recognized me by face and said hello. And and that that was hugely beneficial. And certainly I understand some of the concerns with people hoarding interviews and mm-hmm. all that. And that's a very different discussion. But for me personally, I had to do, I think, what was best for me. And doing that many interviews was really helpful. And obviously, significantly cheaper. I would never have been able to do that if I was having to fly right. each of these yeah. cities. Plus the amount of time, you know, I would round in the morning, do my interviews after, and then I would still be able to care for my patients on as a, as a fourth year resident. And you can't do that if you're obviously flying around the country. Yeah. The time away is just in residency. Mm-hmm. It's almost harder, at least for me, because I, when I did my fellowship interviews, it was pre COVID. Um, and so I did the traditional away rotation and or away rotations for fellowship, which was, you know, uh, all of my vacation time for my last year of Durham residency. And then also had to save up as many days as I could to fly around and do interviews. And so, so intriguing to me to always talk to people about uh, this new virtual interview uh, way of things. And I agree with you. There's good and bad aspects to it, um, but a lot of good especially it's a hundred percent good from a financial aspect uh for both the institution and the even more so the applicants but um saving money on that and and also from a time perspective of patient care and not missing out on your residency as much too so so then you ultimately decided on vanderbilt so that's exciting you're getting ready to go off and do that um so that's awesome congratulations I'm excited to watch you uh, continue to grow. Is it? It's two years, right? It's just one year. Oh, one year. Okay, perfect. Almost done. Yeah. How do you feel? You've been in. <laughs> you've been in Colorado for seven years now. How do you feel about leaving? Ooh, it's it's a mixed bag. It's it's probably not settled set in really. We went for our last mountain bike ride today. I say mountain as in we were in the mountains, but we were riding road bikes uh, and enjoying that scenery. It'll be obviously very different in Tennessee. Because you're moving this uh, week, it, correct? Yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah. No more good we, tap we, water, we, Jason. The <laughs> Denver is very much known for its delicious tasting mountain runoff tap water. Uh, Nashville. So when I match at Vanderbilt, everyone's like, oh, Nashville's amazing. You're going to love it. And I was like, I don't know. I've never been. It was virtual. Uh, so we've been out twice now after I matched and, and do love Nashville. And I do think it's going to be a great place to spend a year, if not longer. Uh, but yeah, it's it's. Seven years in a, in a city, uh, you obviously get to know it very well. You kind of know the lay of the land, you know, the hospitals. And so it's it's like starting a whole job all over again. But in many ways, residency prepares you for that because we have rotations that you do for a mm-hmm. month at a time or six weeks at a time. And each rotation, you know, it's at the same hospital, but in many ways it's different. And so you're almost starting a new job every month or every six weeks. And literally, that's what I would tell people. It's like starting a new job. So you, mentally, you're you're ready for it and I, I don't think it'll be that big of a transition well and I, I tell myself that now we'll see yeah i think it's great you're going somewhere else for your fellowship training that's my mm-hmm. advice i give everybody kind of across the board i don't care what residency you did or what fellowship you're going to do go somewhere else you're always going to learn something different um you've been able to work with the people who do mis in colorado now now you get to see it with a different kind of approach and i think that is the best way for us to learn is for people to to kind of change where they go um, I know that's not always feasible for everyone given their relationships or family obligations, but I think it's great that you're doing that. And like I said, that's kind of my across the board 
uh, I don't think that's ever a negative thing to do. So, absolutely, you kind of had to balance, uh, you know, where you do your fellowship with. Uh, well, I guess maybe you didn't have to balance because your wife has, you know, the career opportunities in almost in certainly any major city, right? Yeah, that was that was an important part of figuring out where we wanted to go. And she had a, a clinical job that really was the job that she had trained for. She wanted to be involved with bone marrow transplant uh, oncology and had got a job in the BMT clinic here at, at University of Colorado. And so it was it was a challenge knowing that she would have to leave a job that she had worked hard for and, and ultimately uh, achieve the, the goals that she had set out for. In many ways, it worked out for reasons that I don't have to get into, but she's she's changed careers and, and not clinical at the moment and is working for a biotech company. So she can really take that anywhere she wants. And that's been a very unique experience for her. And, I think the important aspect is just being honest with each other and being open with each other. And ultimately things kind of work out in the end one way or the other, as long as you keep an open, open line of communication with what each of our goals are. And, and you do make sacrifices and I'll never let her forget, but I was very high in the idea of going to New York city or going to Rochester and Minnesota for their programs. And, and she wasn't very keen on either place. And ultimately the reality is like we, like I learned by going to Oklahoma for medical school and undergrad, you can go anywhere. And, and if you work hard, you can be very successful and very well trained. And so making that sacrifice was not really that difficult in the least bit. Yeah. So you make sacrifices like that for each other. And, and as long as you keep an open mind and communicate with each other, it really wasn't that, that painful of a process by any means. Yeah. We were just talking to somebody yesterday about this where, mm-hmm. you know, she has a professional career and her husband who's a TY is now mo- moving and they had to be very thoughtful about what programs they applied to and everything like that in order to, for her to continue to have her career and everything. And yeah. She actually had to, they did side-by-side interviews. Very interesting. She did like 15 interviews at different oh, cities wow. to see where she could get a job. So it sounds like Courtney didn't have to do that because she's got a, what it sounds like uh, as a remote job. Is that correct? Yeah, one nice benefit of MIS match, and most of the matches are like this now for fellowship, is you actually do it during your fourth year. Mm. And so I knew I would be in Nashville June of my fourth year, so right before the beginning of my last year residency. And so she had a pretty long lead time to find a job in Nashville, whether it be clinical or otherwise. Okay, Okay. yeah. It just happened to work out that she found this job that ended up being remote. And so she was actually able to start in January of this year before we even moved. And we'll continue this job and, and would likely be able to continue it kind of wherever we end up. So that worked out well, but it did help that I could know exactly where I ended up. And then she could start the process, the groundwork of getting a job where she wanted to. And, you know, there's obviously stressors, I'm sure, mm-hmm. for both of us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, moving is fun. <laughs> you have to make that tr- transition, but it worked out really well in the end. Yeah. Well, and that's part of a, any successful relationship is there's going to have to be sacrifice from everybody involved. So. It's interesting to see mm-hmm. how that plays out in different people's lives. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it worked out really well on our, our part. Certainly, I think her being a, a pharmacy uh, has some more flexibility, I think, than if we were both surgeon. That would have been more challenging. Yeah. Or even if we were both physicians, there's there's more challenges. But again, there's lots of successful uh, couples who are both uh, professionals of some kind. And mm-hmm. is, again, I think kind of the uh, things I outline are what lead you to success with that. Yeah. Wow. Oh, okay. One more. One oh, more. Okay. Sorry, David. <laughs> is there is there some place you kind of dream of ending up or the two of you want to end up eventually? Or you, do you want to go back home to Texas? Or are you pretty open to uh, what life throws your way? Or Oklahoma? <laughs> or Courtney? <laughs> yeah. It's the most common question we get asked right now because it is just a one-year fellowship. And so really the job search for me starts almost immediately when I arrive in Vanderbilt. Because the, the time goes by so quickly, and yeah, uh, I, ironically, we're not uh, limited geographically. I think we're both pretty open-minded with where we want to end up. We we know what kind of lifestyle we want. We both very much enjoy biking. We enjoy bike commuting. We enjoy being outdoors. We enjoy kind of a, a city with an infrastructure that allows for that kind of acti- those kind of activities. Sounds like you so want to come to time. Spokane. Yeah, we need to recruit you to the Pacific Northwest. <laughs> Are they hiring a bariatric surgeon? We'll we'll, we'll make sure. We'll work on it. Yeah. Yeah. I'll send you my CV. You can pass it around or staple it to some telephone poles or something. <laughs> uh, so we're pretty open-minded. I, there, there are career aspects that I think are more important to us than geography. So I want to be involved in research. I want to do academics. And so that's probably the best, biggest limiting factor. But beyond that, you know, there's academically-minded programs all throughout the country. And so that, that leaves a lot of doors open. And, and 
we'll kind of see where the wind blows us. But it's exciting to be that open. It's a little nerve wracking because you kind of, I mean, you know, we're almost, we're in our mid thirties practically and there's still a lot of unknown in our life. And it'd be nice to settle down somewhere and begin to build a house like you guys are doing and, and start to settle down somewhere. But at the same time, it's exciting to have so many uh, doors open to us. Yeah. It'll be here before you know it too. And you, yeah, you've, you've <laughs> just got one year left. So yeah. like it, it'll be on you before, yeah, before you know it. Yeah. Yeah. So we're going to make the most of Nashville at the very least uh, for this year and, and try and go to as many concerts and do as many fun things, yeah. which I, I think we could have done a bit more in Denver, although it probably just seems like we didn't do a lot because it was spaced out over seven years. And in reality, you know, we did Red Rocks. We did a lot of the very Denver things to do. Yeah. You had a year of COVID pretty, pretty much destroying everything. True. And, well, I hope you get to go to a Nashville fancy party. That's where we were last oh, night. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what is this? We went to a, we had a Nashville fancy themed party last night. So there, everyone dressed up kind of country, but fancy. Well, some people dressed up. So uh, people's definition of Nashville fancy varied wildly. It went from straight, uh, straight redneck and you know cut off denim shorts and (laughs) belly hanging out to fancy dress, fancy dress. Yeah. (laughs) Um, but there was a the hot chicken. uh, What is it? The hot chicken sandwich. Hot chicken honey. Hot honey chicken sandwich, which is like I guess a big Nashville staple. So it is. They had somebody there catering it, and it was delicious. Yeah. <laughs> so we will have to come visit you guys in Nashville, hopefully. Um, yeah. I'll, it'll go by fast, and then um, we'd love to have you guys out here, too. But um, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us. Any final words of advice or anything you we didn't touch on that you think is important? Mm, I would just say being open-minded throughout the process of going to college, going to medical school, it seems so incredibly daunting and it seems like there's never really a light at the end of the tunnel it also seems at times like you're not progressing like you should you just don't see how you're ever going to be able to do what people do and then it it remarkably really works out in the end for the vast majority of people and so if you just keep an open mind and kind of keep your head head down and and do what you need to do ultimately works out in the end you kind of just have to trust the process yeah that's great advice well thank you so much we'll uh, end it here absolutely thanks guys